Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Over a century of phosphate mining has eaten out the tiny Pacific Island nation of Nauru. While the mining continues, today Nauru is better known as the site for Australia's offshore detention camp, incarcerating people seeking asylum. Amongst all the media coverage of Nauru, what is too often missing is the voices of Nauruans. So, on today's Earth Matters, we're listening to Nauru, to its people and environment. Anya Kangeza is a political geographer and sound artist based at the University of Wollongong in New South Wales. Anya's current project, Climates of Listening, is researching environmental justice and self-determination in the Pacific, focusing on community-led responses to climate change. Anya recently returned from Nauru and joined me in the studio to discuss the project and share some of what they heard. My project has taken place over Fiji, the Marshall Islands, Kiribati and soon Papua New Guinea. And I was really interested in including Nauru um, within my project because it's a site where there's a very clear intersection between environmental racism, uh, neocolonialism and a really long history of resource extraction. And the thing that was very clear to me from the research that I was doing was that there was very little being said about Nauru in terms of climate change. Through my research and through the work that I was doing, I ended up meeting someone who uh, was very interested in the in the things that I was doing, and so they and are ruined. And so they connected me to people in the Ministry of Environment, uh, well, Ministry of Environment, Commerce, and Industry, and. I sent the outline of my project to um, one of the people involved in the ministry and they said, yes, we would love you to come and work with us because we don't really know much about the community responses to climate change. And, you know, climate change is something that hasn't gotten a lot of visibility in Nauru. Um, and as I discovered when I was there, a lot of people weren't even talking about climate change in the first place or thinking about the impacts of climate change. I mean, they were thinking about what was happening, but it wasn't framed within that kind of um, discourse of climate change. So, yeah, I was able to go to Nauru as a kind of um, scoping exercise to just, you know, begin initial conversations with people about the effects that they were seeing. And I'd like to come back to those conversations you had, but perhaps we should start by foregrounding that with a bit of a history of Nauru. Where does colonialism start in the in the history of Nauru and its relationship with Australia? So obviously Nauru has had a very long history of extraction and there is a, a Pacific Studies scholar, Katarina Teowa at ANU, who has done absolutely brilliant work on this. And so I would highly recommend for anybody interested in the extractive histories of Nauru um, and also Banaba, which is... Um, also within Micronesia, um, really do look at the work that 
uh, Dr. Tewa has been doing. Uh, and there's a fantastic book that she's written called Consuming Ocean Island, which for me was really the beginning point of understanding what actually has, has gone on in Nauru. So Nauru has been a very contested site for a long time. Um, it was first colonized in the 1800s by Germany. And that was the point when it, it was discovered that there was phosphate there. And obviously phosphate is a very, very um, profitable uh, a profitable thing to extract because it's very useful for fertilizer and has been strongly connected with the kind of rise of the agricultural industries in Australia and New Zealand by uh, Dr. Tewa. So in the early 1800s, Germany kind of came in and colonized. But then Germany brokered a deal with the British Phosphate Company in the 1900s, and the British Phosphate Company took over phosphate mining. Um, Nauru was declared independent in the late 60s, and the Nauruan government then took control of the mining process. Um, But until that point, it was really Australia, Britain, and New Zealand that controlled um, resource extraction on the island. By the time that Nauru actually gained independence, it was already in the decline. And I think that's a really important point to think about where colonialism has segued into neocolonialism right there, because what started happening there is that Nauru also became quite dependent on aid and different kinds of funding sources that were distinct from the funding, the money that they were generating through phosphate as their primary export. So in the 1960s, Nauru gains independence. In that time, in the intervening period, there's been colonialism uh, through Germany, Britain, Australia, New Zealand. There's been two world wars. Through the world wars, it was also occupied during the world wars by America and Japan. And I mean, one of the things that I was told... um, which really illustrates very well the kinds of devastation that these processes um, wreaked on Nauruans is that uh, there was one point when the Nauruan indigenous population actually dropped to only 800 people and it was deemed that the population needed to grow again and that uh, 1,500 people was the point at which, you know, there, there was not such a great extinction possibility. And so there's now a national holiday, I think it's called Angam Day, um, which marks the point at which the 1500th person was born. That kind of showed that the population was increasing again. And so that incredible decimation of the Nauruan indigenous population really shows how all of these different forms of colonization and imperialism coming together through the resource extraction, through the position that it held as a strategic hold during the world wars, how that really, I think, set Nauru up for the position that it is, the economic position that it is in today. And so today it's been heavily, heavily mined, uh, Two-thirds, is it, of the island has been yeah. mined and is referred to as topside. It's uninhabitable. However, it's also the site of Australia's detention camps for it people is. seeking asylum. So there's mining and there's the brutal incarceration of people seeking asylum. And you you went there. You visited topside. 
give us a bit of a picture of that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that also needs to be said before I say that is that, you know, um, the economy of Nauru went through a massive, massive boom and then bust. And, you know, there are a lot of things that have been written about what happened to the those funds that Nauru gained. There's also a trust fund that's been established. And there's, uh, there's a professor at Melbourne University, Dr. Kate Storr, who writes about this quite well. And I think for people who are interested as well in uh, – in a legalistic and um, I suppose like a political economy understanding of what actually happened with all that financing, Kate's work is a really great place to look as well because, you know, Nauru, Nauru was very, very rich and now they're very, very poor, you know, and I think that that process is really instrumental to where Nauru has ended up now because phosphate is the only export that Nauru has. And I read in an article a little while ago, it was just a a newspaper article, so I don't know how valid this is or where this comment came from, but one of the comments that the article made was that refugees are the new phosphate on Nauru. And I think as grim as that is, it does starkly represent the economic situation there. Top side, uh, where the regional processing centres are housed, is a very stark environment. So I was lucky enough to um, have been provided with an air-conditioned car, which I think was probably the only way that I could have even stayed up on top side um, for the amount of time that I did. So I went up there every day. I was told by a Nauruan to be very careful walking around up there because, as I saw myself, I mean, there are very large jagged pinnacles up there. I mean, the landscape is um, – it's its very dramatic. There are huge pinnacles that kind of go up into the sky and then in between the pinnacles are metres of drop, you know. Um, and it's very hot. That's the thing. It's about 80% humidity, I think. Um, and because the landscape up there is stripped so bare, it's – it's almost like a desert heat, you know, in the tropics. Um, <laughs> I know that's a contradiction. It's not a dry heat. It's a very wet heat. Um, but it's it's really hot, you know, and I thought that given that when I was there it was, you know, it, it was more – there was a lot more rain. Um, I thought that the amount of greenery up there would mean that it would be a little bit protected from that heat, but in my experience it wasn't. And I can only imagine what it's like in dry season – when that greenery isn't there because it was really hard to even be outside for a few minutes outside of air conditioning. It was quite stark, you know, it was quite stark. Because I was up there a lot, the only people that I encountered was refugees and asylum seekers kind of driving around on motorbikes um, and people that were working in the mine and people that were working in the detention centres, you know. It's not a place where you would hang out or go to and – when I was reading that there were expectations that kids are meant to be playing up there or that somewhere for refugees and asylum seekers to spend time, I was like, I don't know how you would imagine that that would be either safe or viable in any way because it's really, really inhospitable. It's really inhospitable. And I can only imagine that if it's that intense when you're in an air-conditioned vehicle, um, I think we have very little understanding of what it's like to be in an environment like that in a tent without air conditioning. And I'll tell you a little bit of history from my experience when I I was a child, going up to Topside and being up there, it's a lot more cooler back then than these days now. 
because there was a lot of trees and so on and it's livable up there and these days now if you go up there you just actually need a bottle of water along with you it's just actually just dehydrated so yeah so you can actually tell the difference with the actual temperature back then and now so yeah seriously it is really really hot even the actual debris when it actually blows in it's just quite hot really really hot you went up there to record what we what did you record and what did you hear up there and what what information i guess did you get through doing your recordings yeah so <clears throat> the reason why i do a lot of audio recordings in my work is because i think sound is a really good way to communicate I suppose, the spaces of the different environments that these changes are occurring in. I think there's something about the way that sound works on imagination um, to help give listeners a better sense of what people are talking about when they refer to somewhere. You can really hear, um, you can really hear things about spaces, you know, you can hear like how the space is set up you can hear about who's in the space you can hear about what's in the space you know it I think it really kind of emphasizes um what is actually going on and I've been quite influenced by ideas around um bioacoustics which is a branch of science that uses sound to monitor um changes in animal species and habitats so one of the arguments that gets made in bioacoustics is that while it's very difficult to, say, visually see the impact of gentrification on um, an, a natural environment or, you know, a particular kind of area, you might not be able to see how many birds are there, right? Or you might not be able to see how many foxes are there, whatever it is. You might not be able to see the, um, the diversity and amount of wildlife that is actually there. You can hear it over time. So you can hear if those particular habitats are becoming more diverse and more populated over time or if that is declining. And one of the things that I was really interested in terms of Nauru was to investigate how the areas that had been mined out, how the species diversity, how the biodiversity there was different to other areas of the island. And it it was really stark. Um, so one of the reasons why I spent so much time up there was because I was trying to record, do bioacoustic um, recordings. And I mean, I sat outside um, during the time. So there are two times of the days where there are, where it's quite easy to hear um, bird, bird song. Um, and I know birds are a very easy thing to fall back on, but you know, it's, it does quite starkly show how environments are populated. So in the morning, which is the dawn chorus, and in the evening, which is the dusk chorus. And so I sat there for several days um, at the dusk trying to record the environments. And for the most part, what I got was recordings of mosquitoes. Um, and I think in my success, most successful recording, the sound of one bird. One bird. One bird. On, Not up, one species of bird, but just one bird. One bird up yeah. on top side. And, and when we – the terms dawn chorus and, and, and dusk chorus, chorus because usually these are times 
in all sorts of environments around the world in which you'll hear uh, an absolute plethora of 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 birds, hmm. different individual birds and different species making a cacophony of, of calls and sounds and topside. It's referred to sometimes as, as a moonscape. Mm-hmm. And so Absolutely. And I mean, I think that was a thing that surprised me about what I recorded was that as I said, while I was there, there was a lot of greenery up there. You know, there was there were trees, there were vines, there were bushes. It it wasn't it wasn't just dead and brown while I was there. So I suppose through that, I kind of naively assumed that there would be habitats that were viable for animals to live in, and it just simply wasn't the case. You know, um, and I did do recordings of other areas, and it was a completely different story. Even a couple of kilometers away. Uh, there was a much more kind of abundant um, sonic environment. And, yeah, that that is what really surprised me because it wasn't – it's not like these areas are very far away from each other. They're quite close. But just the starkness of what it illustrated, I think, um, I couldn't really have gotten to otherwise. What I've heard that um, because of mining, a lot of uh – because we don't have like all these native except one uh, bird species, but with even the bird species, I think it is known the red warbler, northern red warbler. Um, at one time, they said the population uh, decreases. Um, they said all because of mining that all the bird uh, has to go down. But then they have all these. Um, I'm not sure whether it's a cat or dog being after them, so they're not uh, feeling safe. So they have to go up, like in a different like trees, or but then. Um, um, so I think it's just depending on whatever land activities that we're doing here in on land. So what do Nauruans say about it, both topside and then the Nauruan population, which lives along the coast? The island. Going back to it, you said previously that Nauruans are noticing changes on their island, but it's not necessarily conceptualised within the framework of climate change. What are Nauruans saying about the changes that they're noticing across the island? Mm. Well, I mean, I think this is why it's really important to look at climate change through a broader lens of environmental violence and, as I said, colonisation, because the changes that have been occurring on Nauru have also been really tied to the phosphate mining, you know, and the devastation that that has really um, had on on the environment in terms of health, in terms of biodiversity, in terms of to coastlines, you know, um, to the topography of Nauru. So obviously because Topside hasn't been rehabilitated, which is in part what the funds that were granted to Nauru was meant to do, and it hasn't happened, and again, it's a long and complicated history, and I would refer listeners to the work of Kate Storr, um, because that hasn't happened, it's not possible for people to move up there. It's not possible to grow anything up there. So the entire population of Nauru is more or less cramped around the coastline, and People have noticed over time the fact that there's quite a lot of coastal erosion, the fact that houses on the coast, which is pretty much all houses anyway, um, are very vulnerable to inundation, the fact that trees lining the coast or shrubs lining the coast get washed away and you can't really plant anything there. And I think 
you know, one of the areas where this becomes really clear is in terms of the contamination of the water lens. So the water lens is quite heavily contaminated already through phosphate mining. But then you also get things like sea inundation, so it becomes very salty. Then you get problems associated with um, over-inhabitation of particular areas. So, for instance... um, I was told that there's not enough space in cemeteries anymore. So people have been burying their relatives in their front yards and that then leaches into the groundwater as well, contaminating the groundwater supplies. Then there's also the problem of waste disposal. So waste also leaches into the groundwater supplies. So you kind of have what is a bit of a perfect storm of contamination that comes from the phosphate mining, the fact that The phosphate mining has ruined the land where people can live, so people are squashed into very small areas which are under extreme threat from (laughs) impacts of climate change. Um, And so it really makes for a very, very complex and very difficult to address situation. Before I started working with CIE, um, I've noticed around the community that we've been getting a lot more king tides, and it's uh, especially in the northern area of the island. Um, one year specifically, um, I think it was uh, 2012, we had about 10 king tides and that was very unusual for us. We don't normally experience king tides that often. It's mostly at the end of the year during rainy season and all that, but now it's just more constant, more frequent. We, we weren't prepared for the, this to happen, so... Most times, um, people are evacuated from their homes because all of a sudden the waves come rushing into their houses and all that. So there's no, there's no precautions taken. There's no warnings, warning people that this is going to happen because it just happens. We don't have any warning systems in place. And um, I think... Um, we just uh, we weren't we weren't prepared for climate change, and I think that's mostly because uh, we don't really know about climate change. I, for me personally, I didn't know anything about climate change before I started working with the department. I've heard of climate change, but I didn't know the effects of it. There are some government projects to build seawalls and all that. But um, it's not I, it's not all around the affected areas because it's a um, pretty large area. So um, I think the, well, the new seawall in Anathana, I think the purpose of it was to um, redirect the waves, but then it's causing, causing, um, Another problem in another area of the island, because when they redirect the waves, it's going to another part of the island, and that place is being flooded. So obviously they don't have a choice. They can't move inland because there's no land to build on. There's no land to build on. So basically you just you can move further in, but it's still close to the coast because the safest area is just not there doesn't exist for anyone to to actually build on. So what do you hear from Nauruans? Are there Nauruans calling for particular actions to be taken by the 
Nauruan or Australian government? Are there things that they're pointing to in terms of changes that they'd like to see happen? Well, I think a major issue is around water. Nauru has gone through a lot of quite major droughts. I was told that there was a drought that lasted for several years and all of Nauruans are dependent on the desalination plant. The problem with the desalination plant is that it's not the newest technology anymore and there are no experts on Nauru to be able to fix it. So if something goes wrong, experts have to be flown in to fix it. Because the desal plant is so heavily used as well, it can take a really long time for water to be taken to families. You might have to wait up to a month, I was told, to get water brought to you. And there are some parts of Nauru that it's much harder to get to than others. Um, Even though ministry workers told me that everyone had a water tank, other people in the community told me that that wasn't true. So there's, you know, there's water shortages. So, I mean, even... Thinking about things like provisions of tanks to everyone, you know, that could be one place to start. I mean, obviously, I don't know much about what actually goes on with aid and different donors and things like that. But I think there are just basic fundamental things that people have been talking about that need to be changed. And obviously, the biggest thing is the rehabilitation of Topside, because regardless of everything else that can get changed, land is is a huge issue, you know, and there is this huge proportion of the island that is uninhabitable, that if it is made habitable, would solve a lot of problems for people, you know, there would be land to actually grow food, there'd be land for people to move up on, in the case of coastal erosion, you know, it would just be more possible to see a sustainable future for people living there. It's an injustice not to do anything. I think that would be the first thing I'd have to say, uh, because especially when when we haven't done anything, you know, significantly to contribute to climate change. And then being the first victims, you know, on the front line, uh, that's, that's a bit unfair. Uh, I think um, justice, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, climate change justice is um, give them dump a, you know, a big amount of money on them and so that they can adapt and, you know, it doesn't solve the problem. Climate change, you know, that that justice isn't buying us off. I'd have to be blunt about that. Um, justice is solving the problem, and that's that's for what it means to us. For for people in Australia, and and I guess internationally, what can we learn, or what should we attune ourselves to in terms of listening to to Nauru, the people and the environment there? I think. One thing that is very clear to me through all of the work that I've done is that Australians have not taken responsibility for the role that our government plays in the Pacific. You know, I think it's very obvious in the callous ways that parliamentary members address Pacific issues and address Pacific ministers, you know. There is, um, there's a lot that goes on between Australia and the Pacific. And I think that the Pacific often gets invisibilised in a lot of radical left organising. You know, I think we don't look there. And I think educating ourselves um, and becoming more aware of the effects that Australia has within the region is a very, very important thing to do. And it's something that a lot of people have been doing for a while, and I I think that's something that we can work on strengthening. Anya Kangiza, political geographer and sound artist. We also heard on today's show interviews with Darius, Irina, Nodel and Ron Foss, as well as environmental sounds, all recorded by Anya in Nauru.
You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's national environmental justice program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave us a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.